What's going on, Law Nation? Welcome to the Passive Income Attorney Podcast, your favorite place for learning about the world of alternative passive investing so that you can have more freedom, flexibility, and fun. Now, if you're ready to take the next step on your journey to financial freedom, go to PassiveIncomeAttorney.com and download the Freedom Blueprint for free. And that will also get you access to partner with us on one of our next passive real estate investments. All right, folks, let's jump into the content today. Look, what's going on with this crazy economy right now? Who knows? I mean, we've got crazy rising inflation that, that even our government can't slow down by raising interest rates. We've got an inverted yield curve. We've got all of these crazy factors going on at one time. We've got real estate kind of leveling out, or at least depending on where you're at and what you're investing in. So what are we going to make of this? What are we going to see in the next six months? What are we going to see next year? Are we in a recession? Are we not? The definition keeps changing on us. So who knows? Every day, something changes. So what can we expect? Well, our guest of honor today, Neil Bala, is going to discuss these items and more with us. Neil is the CEO and founder at You Grow and Grow Capitalist two commercial real estate investment companies. Neil's companies use cutting-edge real estate analytics technology to source and acquire or build large commercial properties across the U.S. His current portfolio is over 4,800 units with an assets under management value of over $1 billion. He's better known as the mad scientist of multifamily because this man knows his data. And in this interview, you're going to hear about what he's predicting in the near and not so distant future. All right, folks, let's jump in. This is the Passive Income Attorney Podcast, where you'll discover the secrets and strategies of the ultra wealthy on how they build streams of passive income to give them the freedom we all want. Attorney Seth Bradley will help you end the cycle of trading your time for money so you can make money while you sleep. Start living the good life on your own terms. Now, here's your host, Seth Bradley. Neil, what's going on, brother? Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me on the show. Very excited to be here. Absolutely, man. Big fan here. I've seen a lot of your content. I actually use uh, some of your, your marketing or your, your market search uh, Excel spreadsheet to, to analyze markets. So that, that's a, a thing of art. And I, I love that. And I still use that today. So I'm a big fan here. Really, really glad to have you on today, man. Thank you. I think that it's great to be on a podcast because it's such a real time phenomenon, right? And things are changing so fast in the industry that, you know, stuff that I've even said on podcast eight weeks ago, you know, I don't want people to be listening to that anymore. I want them to listen <laughs> to the late stuff. Yeah, nowadays everything needs to be dated. You know, it needs to actually say, well, Neil said this on this date when it made sense. It doesn't make sense now because things have changed so drastically. But exactly. yeah, I mean, I think people take take it with a grain of, grain of salt and understand what's going on right now. So, all right, man, well, let's jump into it. Tell us a little bit about your background, your story. Take it back as far as you'd like to. Of course. Uh, so I'm a, you know, I'm a data geek, a nerd, um, computer science degree. I'm a data scientist by profession. Um, ran a technology company for 14 years from 1999 to 2013 when the company exited um had a successful technology exit and basically got into real estate predominantly because you know i live in taxifornia so i was paying you know 50 percent of my income in taxes and needed tax sheltering and found real estate to be the most effective tax shelter 
Um, and then as I went along in my real estate journey personally for myself, I found that I was able to combine my my obsession with data science with real estate. So I basically looked at it and said, where's the real estate data science community? They must exist. You know, this is the largest market in the world. You know, the real estate market worldwide is larger than the stock market. And I, to my utter shock, I found I couldn't find a single blog, a single meetup that was focused on real estate data science. So I'm like, okay, well, maybe I should start one. So I started one in the San Francisco Bay Area in 2010. And um, four people showed up on the first one. So I was really excited that there were four people listening to my real estate data science. And I thought maybe if I could get to 10, I'd be really happy. But six months later, there were over 100. And a lot of them were geeks and nerds from you know Silicon Valley. They're, they're tech people, they're programmers, software folks. And then more you know afterwards, doctors, a surprising number of doctors, and they would show up and we would basically talk about the use of data science and how we can double, triple, quadruple profits uh, in the same time frame. Uh, by the use of data science and initially a lot of the discussions were uh, let's just call them hypothetical you know it's like if i were to go to this city and for this reason i'd I invest this much money in this city compared to that city i would make that much money but as the group started to actually go out and invest in these nuggets and these cities these amazing towns that i was finding that nobody's ever heard of they were coming back with stories of success so we'd bring them back to the meetup and say hey you know how did you do well i went to this city and i bought this home and you know it doubled in a year blah 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 so people would come back with these stories and so i would share my own stories you know how i how i was using data science to find hidden cities and over time it just sort of mushroomed and then i started getting calls from people saying hey we need the the token nerd guy at our conference in you know nashville basically show up and be the nerd and people would say you know hey do you have anything to sell you know are you doing syndications like no I'm running a technology company I don't have anything to sell like this is just free and I'm just here because I'm getting a free pass to this conference and get to be up on stage with all these smart people um, so people were a little taken aback by that because they're like you came all the way to Nashville from the San Francisco Bay Area and you don't have an agenda it's just like no just a learning agenda but you know people sort of kept gathering under my ecosystem so by the time I sold my technology company i already had a massive audience following me and so when i decided to finally jump in and offer a product that you know people could buy a syndication um you know the audience was very ready to go with me so now we have flash forward you know eight years later we have 800 investors a portfolio that's about a billion dollars that's got five buckets with multifamily being one of them and um it's just having fun i mean the the use of data science never fails. We have never seen it fail. Um, you know, we've never lost money for investors or failed to do double digits. And I think that our overall IRRs over seven exits, I'd put them up against anyone else in the industry. That's incredible, man. Yeah, especially in this industry where, you know, a lot of pe people maybe inflate their experience and they inflate this and that. You know, when when you when people come across you, they look at that data science and they're like, wow, this guy proves his numbers. He's like he's he's showing me on paper, on a spreadsheet, looking at the data and he's making decisions based on that, not just on, let's say, a gut feeling or on, you know, just the just the happenstance of, of how things are. And I think that's what attracts people to you. That's what attracted myself to you. I remember when you came on the scene, I was like, oh, my gosh, I heard you for the first time speak. 
And, you know, you just had, you know, you're like, look at this, look at this, look at this. And I was like, wow, because no one's ever really done that before. So I think it's, it's kind of, it was a, it was a game changer for sure. Well, you know, I, I, I want to say this, uh, I, it's not that people in this industry are not smart or that they don't know how to use data science. Actually they do. The problem is data science is horribly inconvenient. It's well in the ass. Because the one thing that it consistently does is that it actually drives you away from cities that you have connections in. So what, what data science ends up doing is by the time you build a base in a city and everybody knows you and you're getting incoming you know, properties and you're getting off market and you, know, you, you have credibility where lenders know you, basically data science says it's time to leave. And that's the problem. Nobody wants to leave at that point because you, 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 your life's just become easier. So I'm the only syndicator I know of in the US that has properties in 17 metros in 10 states. Some of the best syndicators I know actually are in one state, but their IRRs are more than ours because they're obviously staying in that, in that city, staying in that state for long. But, you know, they've built successful trackers and made lots of money for their investors. So I really bash them in any way. Um, but the, you can't get maximum IRRs, right? You, you're not taking maximum efficiency of the up and down cycles if you're staying in one city or one state. Right, right. You're not limiting yourself to geographic borders. You're looking I'm at- I'm not limiting data. myself to asset classes. So, right. I mean, industrial, self-storage, townhomes, built to rent, multifamily, student housing. And I tried to get into senior housing and failed. So that would have been seven. But I, I'm in six asset classes because I'm constantly looking at which asset classes are the best. Multifamily is always the foundation of everything that we do. But there's- times when when industrial was better i mean just there when when covid hit industrial demand went up 60 percent in a year multi-family demand didn't go up 60 percent the nation had half a percent population growth so how could it go up 60 percent right so there's times when the data shows there's an extraordinary opportunity here or there where you're just going to win no matter what no matter what uh, self-storage was a great opportunity during during covid because people were moving right so the number of people moving from their base city to some other city, either for remote work or simply because they wanted to go live with grandma was massive. It, like it was almost a two X, right? During you know nine months. So it's like, well, self storage is gonna do really, really well when people are churning. And so those kinds of opportunities come and they go as well, right? Today, for example, you know, people ask me, what's the number one opportunity in the US? And while the vast majority of my portfolio, vast majority of my investor money is in multifamily, the answer is it's built to rent. Right, so it's outside of multifamily. Is a variant of multifamily. You could still say it's somewhere within the umbrella, but it's a very different product. It's a different focus. It's very different math. It's just, uh, you know, I, I keep coming back to multifamily as my home, but I know that there's a lot of opportunities that people miss when they don't go out to these uh, these other asset classes or these other cities. Yeah. Yeah. And I think so the, the counterpoint to that, and I think you've probably heard it before too, you know, someone will say, you know, well, I stick to this one market and I stick to this one asset class. Let's say I, I stick to San Diego, California, a small multifamily under 50 units. And that's what I know. And that's why I've been successful. And that's what I'm good at. What would you say to, to that person as far as you following the, the data and, and varying across different asset classes and locations? How are you able to kind of quote unquote, not be the expert of experts at everything and still be so successful. 
So firstly, this concept, you know, you can't be an expert at multiple things is generally correct, but not always correct. So I have an entire data science team in-house and I have an entire development team. So I essentially within my company have built different companies led by different people, right? And they make those decisions because they're doing it all day long. For example, you know, Pete, who's my, you know, director of development, I think for a hundred decisions that he makes, I might basically over him once because he's, he's that guy. He lives in the world of development. He's in eight meetings a day with, you know, land planners and, and, you know, civil engineers. He knows more than me. So I think it really comes about having the courage to give up your decision-making power to people that are full-time specialists. The same things apply in built to rent, right? I have a very, close partnership. So I've created a separate company for this called Ugrow, where there there I've bought in partners, you know, I'm I'm the biggest partner in the in the company, but I've bought in other partners that have more experience at BTR. And I listen to them and I rarely ever go against what they're saying. If what they're saying goes against data science, I make it very obvious that what they're saying is not making sense. But otherwise I'm listening to them. So that's the short answer. If you're trying to do everything yourself, it's not going to work. You basically need to build separate ecosystems, right? I think of myself not as Google, but as Alphabet. Google does one well. They are a search engine company. A long time ago when they started building autonomous cars and building Google Glass, they realized that their company was not doing so well because their focus was changing. So what they did is they restructured their company, separate all of these into separate companies, and then built a top level company called Alphabet. That's what I am. I'm Alphabet. And then I have, you know, Google, my Google is multifamily value add, right? And then I've built a bunch of other companies and they're led by different people. And so that works well. Now, going back to what the other person was saying, it is correct. If, if you're saying, okay, my market is San Diego and I'm, I'm building, you know, hundred unit or I'm, I'm, I'm buying hundred units. That's what I know how to do. Well, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that argument. Uh, it's the Warren Buffett argument. Warren Buffett says, I'm not buying crypto. I'm not buying these tech stocks. I'm buying what I know, right? I'm creating value. I know this works and I basically rinse, repeat this process. It's called the Warren Buffett form of investing. But we know what's interesting is over 95% of all money made in the stock market in the last 50 years has come from people that have done momentum investing. Whereas what Warren Buffett does is called value investing. When things are cheap, he buys them and then he waits no matter how long until they're expensive and then he sells. Does it work? Obviously, Berkshire Hathaway is one of the biggest fund managers in the world, so it clearly works, right? But more than 95% of all money made in the stock market was momentum investing. What that means is people jumped from one stock to another. They jumped from one vertical to another. They jumped from one stock market to another, right? That's how most people made money. So actually, jumping from opportunity to opportunity as the momentum changes is, is the normal way of investing. Even though one could argue that the Warren Buffett way is the best way of investing. That makes a lot of sense. And, and going back to, to what you said, I mean, if, if you aren't the expert of experts at everything, partner with somebody that is, hire somebody that is, put them in a position to succeed and, and don't feel like you have to be the number one guy all the time. You need to learn from somebody else because you need to lean on them for their expertise and what they know well. Yeah. And, and you know, you transition through phases. So initially, I partnered with people that were building multifamily or building student housing. 
And then I hired people in-house, did small projects, pretty small, like as small as 66 units before I started jumping up to 300 units. So I think it's a evolution. It's a process you learn and you can get better at lots of different things, but you need to have patience. I mean, you know, things I'm talking about weren't, didn't happen in the last two years, four years or six years. It's a journey. So if, if you can think of it as a decade long journey, you can do some pretty amazing stuff. I mean, and you know, I look at what is in my mind the best cash flowing opportunity. Notice I use the word cash flow. I didn't use you know total profit. It's actually scale Airbnb. No one in the US has figured out how to do scale Airbnb. So when people look at my strategic goals, my strategic goal is to be that first guy that figures out how to do scaled Airbnb. You can do scaled Airbnb because they want you to sign a, a loan for every single property. And that's not really possible. You want to sign one loan for 50 or 100 or 200, that sort of thing. And that's why you don't see a syndicator that just does Airbnb. But that's something that I'm passionate about. I think that you know, cash flow has now been squeezed out of multifamily. If anyone is projecting more than 2% cash flow in the first year in their multifams, they're, um, let's just say they're very bullish about the market, right? It just isn't there. You know, we have six and a half percent bridge rates today. So if you're producing more than 2%, you basically underpaid for the property or severely underpaid, 30, 40, 50% underpaid to get that 2% cash flow. And that's not unusual. You know, I travel worldwide. I, I, you know, th this year I'll go to seven countries. And so whenever I go to a country, I look at their real estate market. And you know what I find is whether it's a African country like Morocco or a established European country like France or London, there's no cash flow anywhere in the world in real estate except the United States. And now we're the last country that's moving away from cash flow for real estate. Wow. Yeah, that's that's incredible. I mean, that's that's good to know. I mean, we we are seeing that in in multifamily, especially people are chasing the yield, and they're like, you know, we, they're still you know putting out the same uh, target returns as maybe a couple of years ago, and it just doesn't make sense. It's like, how is that possible with the things that are going on? So you definitely need to take yep. a a closer look at the underwriting, closer look at um you know the syndicator's assumptions, and and make uh, good decisions for yourself when you're going to get into one of these investments. Absolutely. And I, I, I don't know if the overall IRR needs to change by much. I think it, it, it needs to go down by about 10%. So if you were at 16, you should now be at 14.4. So that's a 10% reduction. But the cash flow is what has been hit a great deal by interest rates. Because the moment you walk into your property, if your interest rate six and a half instead of four, well, you're going to have less cash, right? The property may still continue to appreciate due to outstanding demand. One of the things that's happened with COVID is that office, uh, you know, the asset class called office, a lot of those people are now moving over into multifamily because office is doing extraordinarily poorly after, um, you know, COVID with, with, you know, less than 60% of the white collar audience having returned to the offices, you know, office vacancy is all time high. So a lot of those people who are actually richer than the multifamily people have started investing in multifamily. So core demand for multifamily has actually increased since COVID. It's not gone down, it's increased. And so as core demand increases, even though prices have increased and, and you know, margins have shrunk, you're still, you can still see an increase in, um, in, in profits. I just feel like the, the cash flow projections being provided these days are shockingly high. And so when, when 
when you look at what I'm buying and a lot of people are like, so what are you doing different? The answer is different strategies. So when I buy a cash a value add today, I am doing what is known as super value add. So I'm the only syndicator that I know of in the US. I, I did this search because I wanted to learn from other people, kind of pick up ideas from them. I couldn't find anybody. What I do is I buy buildings where I've already talked with the cities 90 days before purchasing that they will allow me to build extra units. So there's a building uh, in um, Dalton, Georgia. I talked with the city before I bought it and it was 151 units. So I was able to build 29 more units. And because I built 29 more units, my net operating income spiked up because my expenses were the same, but now I had 29 brand new units that didn't exist when I bought the property. So it became so profitable that I was able to basically sell it and give my investors a 44% return. But then I bought, you know, took a new LLC, which then purchased the property because I had also talked with the city who likes me now that I can build an additional 42 units. So now 42 additional units are under construction in a, in a property that went from 150 to 180, and now it's gonna go to 222. So what I'm doing is each time I build additional units, I'm able to do a full flip and I get not just the cash flow benefits of the 151 units, but I also get the back-end benefits of those 29 or 40 new units. This is called super value add. The reason other people can't do it is you have to have a development company inside of your company that does that. So my development company, while they're building you know, 1500 units of all kinds, their little side hobby is to basically build these 29 or 42 units in my value adds. Yeah, that's what I, that was. You beat me to the comment. That's what I was going to say. Most syndicators, most operators don't have that development tool in their back pocket. If you're, you know, they just have, a, they hire a contractor to do, you know, the light value add to turn the units. You have the development piece, the ground up development piece in house, or at least the partnerships to be able to do it so that you can do both business strategies at the same time. Absolutely. We, we bought development in house now. So, you know, our current projects at this point, our staff employees, uh, whether they're uh, you know directors of development, whether they're they're zoning people, all of those over the last five years, one piece at a time, we bought it in house. And if it wasn't in house, it would not work. I mean, the craziest thing for any syndicator to do would be to basically try and outsource a thirty-unit building. You never break even, right? So it only works for us because our basically 1500 units that they're building and we're kind of getting this free benefit. So I'm, I'm taking that approach. The other approach that I'm taking, which I think anyone can take, any syndicator take is, you know, I'm looking at the red hot cities. So Austin, Phoenix are two perfect examples and I'm surrounding them with projects. What I'm not doing is I'm not building a large number of projects in, in Austin. I do have a one project in Austin that was kind of a one-off. What I'm doing is I'm surrounding Austin, because I believe Austin is going to be for the next 30 years overall the, the most red hot city in the US. Recessions will come, recessions will go. But when I see the, how well positioned Austin is, Austin, the city and the Austin San Antonio corridor are the biggest 20 year, 30 year opportunity that I can see for a lot of different reasons. I mean, from things like water access to, you know, where they are geographically located to the freeways that run through them. There's just so many different benefits that I think that that's, that's gonna be key. So guess what I'm doing? I'm doing projects around Austin. So north of Austin, 52 miles away is the city of Killeen. Normally I wouldn't invest in Killeen because you know it's a military city, so there's risk there. But the fact that it's close enough to Austin so people can live in Killeen and drive down to North Austin to work there makes it extraordinary. 
like if you lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, if you buy a property today in Fairfield, I mean, Fairfield is the middle of nowhere. It's halfway to Sacramento, go through fields to get to Fairfield. But guess what today, if you buy a 40-year-old property in Fairfield, it's 3.5 cap. Right? Why? Why would Fairfield be 3.5 cap? It doesn't really have jobs or anything like that. The answer is you can live in Fairfield and drive to North Bay Area and work in the San Francisco Bay Area. Right? That's its only utility. Killeen is similar. Yes, it has a massive military base, so that's a that's a benefit. But you can drive to Austin. So I studied the number of people that were leaving Austin to go to Killeen, and that number was very substantial, substantially greater than the number of units being built in Killeen. Today, the unit number of units being built in Killeen is zero. Zero. Why? Because construction costs are over 200,000 a unit, and I'm buying multifamilies at 127 a unit. So how in God's name would any builder ever break even, right? So rents have to go up $500 a unit before anyone can afford to break even and build something in Killeen. So the city is protected from any incoming new construction, but it's not protected from, uh, you know, 10,000 people a month, well, well 10,000 people a quarter running away from Austin because they can't afford 40% rent increases to Killeen, where still my rents are still in, you know, in the $1,300 range. That's a strategy that works. So I've decided to surround Austin in all directions. I'm doing a project in Maynard, East, Killeen, you know, North, Fredericksburg, East, San Marcos, South, and New Braunfels, further South. And then San Antonio, really, really south, right? 70 miles south. That's, those kinds of strategies allow me to still continue to buy, you know, value-add product. I love that, man. I love that, man. That's, <laughs> that, ladies and gentlemen, is why he's the mad scientist of multifamily right there. That <laughs> quick analysis. Um, Neil, let's, let's switch gears a little bit. I know we wanted to get into this and we're get, getting through this interview a little bit. So, like, you know, we've got this, you know, everybody's talking about the inverted yield curve and inflation is, is crazy right now. And, and it used to be rising interest rates, but also fluctuating interest rates at this point. You know, how do we make sense of what's happened over the last couple of years combined with what's happening now and, and what we're expecting in the future? I think it's difficult, especially we're recording this on July 14th. Yesterday was a bomb that went off in the markets because we were all expecting that with the interest rate you know, hikes from the Fed, inflation numbers would be lower than the 8.3 in May. They would be you know, maybe around seven. Well, it came out to 9.1, which essentially means that the Fed is on July 27th going to do something truly crazy. Yesterday, the Bank of Canada did something truly crazy. They raised interest rates by 100 basis points in one day. Right. That's nuts. Like it's this sort of stuff used to happen in the 80s. Right. And so I wouldn't be surprised if the Fed on July 27th raises interest rates by 100 basis points, but definitely they will raise it by 75 basis points, which we were hoping would come down to 50 now that inflation was moderating. Hadn't, hasn't happened, obviously. So, so we're in a very tough situation now. Bridge loans could easily go to 7 percent in the second half of this year. It's very difficult. I mean, pricing today makes no sense whatsoever. So, I mean, I would have said something different a week ago, Seth, because my hope was that inflation would come from eight down to seven, you know, sort of, sort of on its way down. It seems that at this point, Fed needs to do not just more, but aggressively more. So here's two things I'm going to say on July 14th. You know, our chances of ending up in a recession just went from 40 to 50% to 90 to 100% over the next 12 months. Because at this point, the Fed basically has to forget all common sense and throw everything that they have at inflation, 
everything that they have. There's a midterm election in six months. And if inflation is running this way, the Democrats are not just going to lose. They're going to lose their shirt. So we, we know that the White House is going to be calling the, the Federal Reserve every month saying, what the heck are you guys doing about inflation? Get, get the damn thing down. So they're going to throw the kitchen sink at it. When you do, the Fed's track record, whenever it throws the kitchen sink at inflation is 0% of the time they avoid inflation. Uh, avoid recessions, 0% of the time. They've done it once in the last 61 years, one time in 1994, and they only raised interest rates three times in 1994. They're planning to raise seven times in a single year this year. So I don't think that one applies. So we are now planning for a recession economy. We're planning for an economy where interest rates rise. Treasuries are going to go up to 3%, which means bridge loans, six and a half, seven. Um, and we're also planning then after that for a recession. During a recession, and this is very important. I mean, there's this madness about real estate where we, they, people think we are somehow special. Hey, look, the stock market's down 30% and we're not down 30%. Well, the answer is wait six months. The, the real estate market runs nine to 12 months behind the stock market. It runs 12 months behind the crypto market. So whatever bad things are supposed to happen to real estate couldn't have possibly happened yet. The stock market only crashed three months ago. So we're still in that time period where we're waiting for prices to adjust. So based on what I've seen, it's absolutely impossible. And you know, you can quote me on this, that multifamily prices will stay the same. If you look at the price of a property per door in January this year, by December of this year, that price has to be down eight to 15%, eight to 15%. And if you're buying today, it's all, and it's, it maybe only has gone down 5%, you're essentially buying a property that's going to fall another, you know, three to 10%. And so you've got to be extraordinarily careful buying something today, especially on July 14th. Maybe you could have been a little more aggressive on July 11th before you knew what was happening to inflation. But today, you know, with everything the Fed did, it didn't work. It didn't work, right? So now crazy measures are going to be taken to contain inflation, putting us into a recession. And people who are like, multi-family, we need 5 million units, we'll do well during a recession. It's all nonsense. It's, it, there's no data to support this. Household formation in the US is what creates demand for multifamily, not population growth, right? Household formation shrinks in every recession and spikes after every recession. So after a recession, so the right way of saying things is, it, when the economy has you know 5% or less unemployment, that's certainly the case right now, we, we need 5 million units. We have a shortage of 5 million units. So obviously there's lots of demand, lots of demand, not enough supply. When the economy is in a recession, that shrinks a lot because household formation is negative. Why? People go live with their mom. They go live with their grandpa. So for how new households are not being formed, even though population is increasing during recession, there's negative household formation. So supply demand shrinks, right? So there's, this concept of we have a shortage of 5 million homes is complete bullshit because it's really about what point of the economic cycle are we in? There could be no demand or 5 million. In normal times, it's 5 million. Right now, today, we need 5 million units. We're short. That's why rent growth in, in June was phenomenal, right? But the moment we hit a recession, that number is going to shrink very fast. 
That makes a lot of sense. And that, that is the, that is the counterpoint that people are saying is the supply demand is so messed up that it's going to be able to combat basically all the negative effects of, of a potential recession. And I'd love to get your input on this. I, I heard the other day and I don't know the, the source, but it's definitely worth mentioning that someone did an analysis over the last, I believe six recessions since a certain date. I don't know, maybe since the sixties or something. 61. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. 61. And they said that only during one of those recessions, which was the last one, well, not including COVID 2008 was the only one where housing prices. Now I'm talking about housing, like, you know, single family properties single family. actually yep. got reduced. Now, that's right. What, that's right. What would you comment on something like that? Absolutely. I think that that, so that actually is an analysis that I follow very closely. So uh, since 1961, the Fed has basically raised interest rates nine times, eight times the economy went into a recession. One time it was a double dip, 1982. So they you know, took it into a recession, cut interest rates, and then had to take it back into a recession because you know, the inflation wasn't dying. So it, people are right. So 2008, obviously, I, I simply tend to discount 2008. It wasn't a real estate recession. It was a failure of lending, right? So what we did was basically we gave money to people who didn't deserve to be buying these homes. And so we created a very weird situation. I certainly see no evidence of that in today's market where, you know, lending standards are very strict. Um, so if you, if you leave out 2008, the only time I did see a dip, I did see another dip, but it was short, is that when we raised interest rates to 18% in spring 1982, housing dipped by 10% the following quarter. But what was truly amazing is it spiked by 10% in the next six months. So it was back to where it was nine months later at 18%. So I think people are right. Housing is an incredibly resilient market. It's very, very resilient, right? But you have to tell the whole story, right? So home prices are not really likely to drip uh, to dip, to dip even with inflation now being at 9%. I'll stick with my forecast. A year from now, US home prices will be 4% higher. 4%. Obviously the last 12 months they were, you know, 18% higher, so it's it's a slowdown. But there's still positive growth there. But what I'm also saying, everything's in the nuance, right? Black is always wrong, white's always wrong, gray's always right. So the nuance is that there will still be over a dozen cities in the US that will that will see home price drops. Boise, Idaho is certainly at the top of my list because it's it's you know extre- extremely bubbly. And I've been talking about Boise since 1917, uh, 2017 as an incredible opportunity, but all opportunities eventually turn into busts. So there's a number of cities in the US that will see prices fall. Overall, I think we'll still see prices go up 4%, but then you have to also connect that with rents, right? So you know, a lot of people are like, yes, Neil, but you've been saying for five years that if home prices get too expensive and people can't afford homes, then they come over to the rental side. So it's a net benefit. Yes. But once again, let's be gray. Let's not be black and white. If in a recession, people, you know, basically the you know, home prices are still too high, which they still might be through this recession. Remember, in lots of recessions, they don't drop in prices and they can't afford them. In a recession, people go to mom's house. They bunk with a friend. They don't create households. So we don't get the benefit of rent increases during a recession. Even though home prices are still too expensive, people are making less money. They just tend to bunk with somebody. They don't create new households. So this idea, this concept that, well, because if home prices don't drop, rents will keep shooting up during a recession. 
once again, there's no data to support that. During a recession, people do whatever is needed to get along. And some of that is splitting and sharing and living with, with mom. And so we don't see much rent growth during a recession. So I am predicting that while rent growth will remain very strong in the US in the next six months, why? Because the economy is very strong right now. It's incredibly strong, right? This is why inflation is rising, even though the Fed is trying to beat the shit out of the economy. It's still going up because the economy is fighting back against the Fed. So I, I don't think rent growth can really moderate very you know, quickly. And June numbers look just as good as July, by the way. So I think we get strong rent growth, maybe six, seven, eight percent annualized until the end of the year. And then it starts to slow. And next year, I think rent growth could only be 1% or 2%, right? Something that we haven't seen for a long time. Um, because I think next year for sure is a recession year at this point. Got it. So, so what do we do? I mean, we, if we've got, you know, we've got a lot of capital in the system still. Um, people have money. They, they want to spend it. They want to invest. Um, you know, they're not happy with the stock market or crypto, obviously, right now. Uh, people are interested in real estate. Neil, what, what are you investing in? What, what do you think you know, the, the, you know, the household consumers should be investing in? Where do they place their money, given the fact that there is a looming recession? So there's two approaches, right? I'll give you the standard approach and the unusual approach. The standard approach is still invest in multifamily. But you know, the message really is for syndicators, not for investors. Syndicators, be fearless, right? Go out and tell your investors your challenges they will still continue to invest because the asset class is still a phenomenal place to invest in compared to stocks and bonds and crypto, right? So it's, it's a superior asset class, but you've got to readjust their expectations of immediate cash flow in the next two years. And I think it's doable. I think that the better syndicators will do it and the worst syndicators won't. They'll still predict 15, 16, 17% IRRs. They'll still predict 6% cash in year one or 5%. And they will basically destroy their careers. I think this is a great time to adjust expectations of investors. We were able to adjust investor expectations at the beginning of COVID. It worked just fine. We didn't see any decline in syndication investment in during 2020. Um, oh, you know, oh, well, maybe not in the first three months of 2020, but but after that, there was no decline. And then obviously in 2021, we saw the greatest time of our lives. So this is really all about the mindset of the syndicators. The I think the the investor understands the benefits of real estate, having seen the stock market goes down. Um, I think that we can adjust returns. It's still the best asset class. So move forward. Be careful with what you're saying to investors. You don't need the returns that you did before. Investors are not as dumb as you think they are. They, they see what's happening in the marketplace. They see everything slowing. Um, the second approach is you start looking at products that are more than two years out. So for speaking for myself, I do a lot of investor education. Like I spend 15 to 20% of my entire year you know, looking at data and sharing it with my investors. So I feel like I have the most educated investors. I have about 8,000 accredited investors of which 800 are currently invested in, in projects that I'm running. And these 800 people understand what I'm trying to do. And I'm basically saying it makes sense to do new construction at this point, because then I am not worried about bridge loans, bridge rates, because I, my approach is two years from now, interest rates will be going down. When I look at the nine times over since 1961 that the Fed has raised rates, each time sharp up, sharp down. These graphs are available on the web for anybody that wants to see for free. 
sharp up, sharp down. What does that mean? The Fed sharply raises rates, almost kills the economy, it gut punches it, brings it either down to zero or in most cases below zero in, in, a, in a recession, and then has to cut interest rates. Because imagine the Fed raising interest rates during a recession. That would be the stupidest thing ever, right? What do you do during a recession? You cut interest rates. Now, the chances of a recession are 90 plus percent. So we know that at some point, the Fed's going to cut interest rates and restart what we call this, this cycle, right? So the cycle restarts at that point. If you do new, new construction projects today, you're delivering them 24 to 30 months down. So you're actually delivering the product at the time when rates are on their way down. Today, they're on their way up. So if I buy something today, I'm buying when rates are on their way up. So obviously, there's a lot of risk that I'm taking that I could end up buying the most expensive property and its price could fall. That makes a lot of sense. I've actually heard you talk about that before that you're investing in projects that are going to, you know, they're going to come to, they're going to come online after this recession. And that, that makes total sense. And, you know, obviously I have the, the ability to slow them down from, you know, during construction, if it's like, oh, I need another six months. Well, let's just slow the construction process down. So I think those are two completely different approaches that people could take. Um, the other approach that I'm taking is the super value add concept where you go in and you add more value rather than just, you know, buying and, and, and rehabbing. But something that I philosophically want to say, and this is really for syndicators, right? There's no such thing as a party that goes on forever, right? I see syndicators being very inflexible in their approaches and their thought process. So, in 2011, the number of syndicate, active syndicators in the US that were buying properties was 10% of the people buying today, 10%. Do you think we've increased multifamily stock by 10X? We haven't even doubled it. We haven't even come close to doubling it. So if there's 10 times as many people trying to do the same exact thing that they were doing in 2011, with prices having tripled. So the you know, multifamily prices per door were 62,000 in 2009. Today, they're 192. So that's 3.3x. So the price has gone up 3.3x, where our population has increased by 9%, right? I mean, these numbers, they're so stark that there's only one inevitable conclusion that value add today has much less value than it did three years, five years, 10 years ago. And I, and I just don't see enough people talking about that, simply because I'm not sure that they know of any other alternative alternatives. So they kind of keep doubling down. That, and I, I think that's, that's not good. That, that's absolutely not what, you know, logic says. That's not what data says. You, you really have to find other ways to generate money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm seeing a lot of the same properties that were value-add properties getting revalue-added, you know, two to three years right after they already went through one cycle with, with a different ownership group. Um, it, it's pretty insane. It's like, well, how much meat on the bone is still left? There, there's probably not a lot. It's, it's shocking to me. So, I mean, here's an example. Three and a half years ago, I buy a property in Tucson for 55K. My data told me, everyone was buying in Phoenix three years ago, right? My data told me that doesn't make any sense. Phoenix is really expensive. I'm going to go buy in Tucson. So I buy it for 55K. A couple months ago, I sold it for 185,000, right? So I didn't sell it for three times as much. I sold it for 3.3 times as much, right? in a time frame when Tucson's population increased by 6%. So I'm getting 330% gains in a city that's getting a 6% population gains. Don't you see how out of whack this is? Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. Um, before we start wrapping it up, I, I've got to get a couple of predictions for you. You know, where do you think one, I think people would love to hear this. Where, where do you think the interest rates might settle in 2023? And also, you know, with the, with the cap rates compressing and with all the different factors that are, that are pushing down on us right now, where do you, where do you, how do you think the cap rates will respond to, you know, the interest rates and, and the continuing rising inflation? Sure. So um, I'll go with cap rates first. So I think the lowest cap rates in the U.S., were in January of 20 this year. So if you break down cap rates, multifamily cap rates um, by month, you'll see that Jan was the peak, right? And then after that, you know, we started hearing more about the Fed. Then obviously February was war. Um, so you know, since then we've already seen a decline. So today is July 14th. I believe multifamily cap rates have already adjusted by 0.4%. So let's say that nationwide they were 4.5 cap on July on Jan 1st. Well, today I believe then they're then they're they're basically down to you know they're up. Sorry, they're up from you know whatever that that number was. They're up 0.4. Now you you might say no 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 there's no data to indicate that. Well, the answer is because all of those properties are in contract at this point, right? And it takes from the, the time of sale, it takes CoStar another 60 days to grab that data. Then the data gets stolen by CoStar, goes to all these other analytics providers who massage it. So you can't really be seeing this data for the next three or four months. So there's already a 0.4 cap adjustment. By the end of the year, we'll be at maybe 0.7 cap, 0.6 cap, somewhere in that range, 0 0.6, 0 0.7. Not more than that because there's so much demand. There's so much money sitting on the sidelines. 0 0.6, 0 0.7 is I think where we'll end up. But then here's the good news. Then next year, I, I start seeing rates compressing again because at some point the Fed will finish its cycle. The moment the Fed finishes its cycle, the smart money, the institutional money says, well, I've seen this nine times in the last 61 years. Inevitably, they're going to drop rates. So I'm going to start picking up money to start buying product because you know as soon as I finish my rehab, I'm going to be, be able to refinance at a lower rate. So now that creates demand that creates more people jumping into the marketplace and the rates start to compress again. So I think that by the end of next year, cap rates, let's say they were four cap in January this year, which was kind of the, their lowest point, And they're 4.75 cap at the end of this year, let's say, I think we might be back down to 4.25 cap by the end of next year, right? So as, as rates drop, I think we are going to see them drop. I do not believe that by the end of next year, rates will drop as low as they were in January. COVID was an extraordinary one-time event. Those events do not recur. So I don't think we get back to, you know, whatever the crazy cap rates that we had in January this year. The, those crazy cap rates allowed me to sell that 55K a door property for 185. That doesn't come back. Now on the so you asked me about cap rates. What was the other question you asked me? Um, uh, interest rates, where do you think they're going to settle? So we'll peak, I think, um, in uh, November, December. Um, so, you know, bridge could be six and a half, could be seven. And then by the end of next year, definitely down at least one and a half points. So if we are, if we settle at six and a half percent in December, then five at the end of next year, um, if we settle at seven in December, then five and a half next year. So they once again, they won't come down to where they were in January or they, where they were last year. That's again, COVID one-time event, uh, but we should see a declining cycle of rates next year. Makes sense. Time heals all wounds, right, Neil? <laughs> it does, it does. So if you can hold on, if you're cautious, if you raise extra money, raise extra reserves, 
It makes sense to buy multifamily. Just don't expect what you saw in the last two years. That was the best Kool-Aid that you'll ever drink in your life and you'll never get to drinking again. <laughs> awesome, man. All right, well, let's jump into the Freedom Four. It's time for the Freedom Four. What's the best thing you do to keep your mind and body healthy? Um, keep a, an extreme obsession about work-life balance. So I spend, you know, I do not work more than 40 hours a week. I force myself. Every time I work more than 40 hours a week, I hire an executive assistant, right? So that forces my hours down. Um, I, I, I spend a lot of time planning out my work-life balance. I travel eight weeks a year. Um, I do plotties, I do boot camps, you know, that there's, you, if I see people obsessed with multifamily, why aren't you obsessed with yourself as much as multifamily? Multifamily isn't you, you are you. Be obsessed with yourself. That's the best thing you can do for yourself. Love that, love that. With all your success, what is one limiting belief that you've crushed along the way and how did you get past it? I think um, the, the, the core belief was that I could not be good at more than one thing at once. This is something that you learn from everybody and it gets repeated so many times it gets burned into your brain. And I think I wasted five years of my life just thinking I can't go beyond this one thing. And I think I spent a lot of time reading and thinking about this and figuring out how to do it. And I don't have that belief anymore. I think that, I think I learned more from Elon Musk there than from anybody else. If someone can simultaneously run, you know, multiple four or five different companies and have them, you know, do well, I can run too. <laughs> What's one actual step our listeners can do right now to start creating more freedom? Very simple. You know, the spend six months, just six months following the miracle morning. The miracle morning may not be the best book in the world but it will allow you to find your best book. Six months is enough, it'll change your life. Just buy The Miracle Morning and say, in the next six months, I'm on it. Absolutely. Last but not least, how has passive income made your life better? Um, because of my obsession about happiness, right? I track everything on that basis. I've been able to use my active and my passive income to create happiness. So I have a meeting every Friday where I basically sit down and my two executive assistants ask me this question, what will make you more happy today? And then we go and basically do it. And the list is never ending, by the way. It's, it's remarkable. So the answer is my obsession with happiness. Um, it, it, it's, it's worked well because I have lots of passive income. Awesome, man. Awesome. Very unique answer. Neil, it's been awesome having you on today. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Well, I'm lucky to be the only Neil Bawa on the World Wide Web. So N-E-A-L space B-A-W-A, hit enter in Google. Um, there are several hundred presentations and conference interviews. I think there's about 250 podcasts that I've done. I love podcasts because uh, it allows me to kind of, you know, uh, talk to people across the world and connect with them by, while still sitting in front of my computer. So um, that's probably the best way to get started. If you're interested in some of the things I'm doing, you can type in Neil Bawa BTR, Neil Bawa Virtual Assistance, uh, Neil Bawa uh, Super Value Add. Just, you know, the things I've talked about in this interview, um, like, you know, Neil Bawa Best Cities, you know, you know, if you want to learn about these crazy cities, like why is Neil Bawa investing in Rogers, Arkansas? Nobody has ever heard of Rogers, Arkansas. So why is he so obsessed with it, right? 
so just Neil Bawa best cities and you know you'll get to learn more about that that's great type in Neil Bawa and your favorite subject and something awesome will come up <laughs> <laughs> all right brother appreciate you thanks for coming on thanks so much Neil Bawa ladies and gentlemen the mad scientist of multi-family man I've been following that dude for a while love his message. I love his data analytics and how he can break down a deal with the numbers. Now, you have to have not only the numbers, but you also must trust your gut as well. But nobody does it better than Neil by breaking down the numbers into simple form so that you can go into each and every deal and investment with eyes wide open. And speaking of that, that we are extremely excited to bring to you in the next month Passive Income Pro. What is Passive Income Pro? It is your ticket to going into a passive real estate deal with eyes wide open so that you can invest confidently in every single deal that you participate in. I'm going to walk you through each and every step of the way from vetting the sponsor, vetting the market, and vetting the deal so that when you click send on that wire to someone that maybe you've just met or that you've only known for a short amount of time, or maybe you've only heard them on a podcast, well, you're going to feel confident that you've made a great decision in your financial future and set yourself up for the best chances at a great investment. And that'll be available very soon. And I'll keep you guys in the fold. And I'll tell you what, if you go to PassiveIncomeAttorney.com and you download the Freedom Blueprint, you'll get on that mailing list and let you know when this masterclass goes live. All right, folks. Until next time, as always, enjoy the journey. Thank you for listening to the Passive Income Attorney Podcast with Seth Bradley. Do you want more ideas on how to generate multiple streams of passive income? Then jump over to PassiveIncomeAttorney.com for show notes and resources. Then apply for the private Facebook community by searching for the Passive Income Attorney on Facebook. And we'll see you on the next episode.